Good morning. Aha. Uh-huh. Hello. Greetings. How are we doing this morning? It's good to see you guys. My name is Tim Hollis, and I am one of the ministers here on staff at the Parkway Church. I'm just excited uh, to get to preach through this text in particular with you this morning. But before I do that, I want to talk about Twitter. Uh, A couple weeks ago, Zach Lee actually talked about Twitter, and he shared with us some profound tweets that he had gathered from the Twitterverse, uh, including things about how we should be calling jet skis, boater cycles, and things like that, okay? So today, I want to share a couple of tweets with you that are from the opposite end of the Twitter spectrum. When the ones that Zach shared, they were kind of witty, they had a great sense of humor, there was some intelligence to the jokes. And what we're reading today are very funny tweets, but not necessarily because the authors are trying to be funny, but more so because you get the feeling that most of these people think that chocolate milk comes from chocolate cows. These these tweets are noticeably uh, lacking wit and intelligence, okay? So I'm going to actually put them up here just because I want you to experience the spelling errors and the general glory of these tweets uh, firsthand. Again, these are real. These are real people. And if somehow, by weird chance, you're one of these people, just let me know so I can make fun of you in person. Y'all skipped ahead of me. Y'all are already reading. So yeah, the first one. Oh, you can put it back up. Someone said in January, wow, I can't believe America's 2019 years old now. Amazing. Uh, Next, you ever think about how the year 3000 is literally 81 years away? That's profound. It just kind of hit me that Oreo backwards spells Oreo. Okay. Another spelling one. Whoa, Atlanta spelled backwards is Atlanta. No, it's not. It's not. Uh, For any of you expecting a child, this one is particularly relevant. I'm sure you've thought this. Does it take 18 months for twins to be born or nine? It's a great question. Is Mickey Mouse a dog or a cat? (laughs) Is Mickey Mouse a dog or a cat? Great question. Well, this one I love in particular. There's no I in happiness. Aww. Very sad face. You know who wrote this? Zach Lee. Zach Lee wrote this. No, he didn't. He did not write this. But the fact that you thought he did, that, that means something. That means something. This next one is kind of a conversation between two people, and so I just gave them names, Jane and John. So Jane says, I cuted, but she means cutted. I cutted my hair, and it went back to curly. And so then John replies, don't you mean cut? Ha. He's very right. She very confidently says, it's past tense. (laughs) Like the thing you camp in. Very nice, Jane. And finally, this one's my favorite. This is a guy on Twitter who ordered a pizza. He lives in, U- in the UK. He ordered a pizza from Domino's, and when it arrived to his house, when it was delivered, it was not, apparently, what he had ordered. And so he takes to Twitter to get this resolved. He says, yo, I ordered a pizza, and it came with no toppings on it or anything. It's just bread, Domino's. To which they reply, we're sorry to hear about this. Please let our friends at Domino's UK know of this so they can help. To which he replies, never mind, I open the box upside down. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. People are amazing, okay? 
people are amazing. I love Twitter because you just get to see the reality. We tend to think that most people are awesome and smart. Read Twitter for 10 seconds and you'll find gold all over the place. Why do I share these random tweets with you? Well, first off, because they're hilarious and it's fun to laugh. But second, just a poll of the room. How many of you have school-aged children? Just raise your hand if you have children that are school-aged. Now imagine this scenario, that you're sending your child to a teacher at a school and you find out that that teacher is the author of all these tweets. Just imagine that. How confident are you that she's going to be able to equip your child to understand and learn even the most basic concepts? She doesn't know how a pregnancy with twins works. She thinks the year 3000 is 81 years away. You should have very little confidence. <laughs> the things she's saying demonstrate that she's not a good source of knowledge and of truth. And in our text today, John is actually going to be quoting and he's going to be critiquing what I like to imagine are the, the first century equivalents of dumb tweets. We've talked about in the past few weeks that there are these false teachers spreading their ignorance around the community that John's writing to. And so what John's going to do today is he's going to quote these false teachers, he's going to hold up the things they're saying for everyone to see, and he's going to try to help his audience recognize how far these teachers go away from the gospel, how far they go away from what is true. So this is something that we actually saw John begin to do last week, if you can remember, it was, it was so long ago. But John actually began critiquing these arguments last week. And so everything that's happening this week is just built on top of what we learned last week. So I say that because we're just going to have to spend a little bit of time in verses 5 through 7 before we get to our text this morning. I just say that because I don't want you to be afraid. I haven't forgotten what text I'm actually supposed to be preaching this morning. We just need to understand verses 5 through 7 so that we can understand 8 through 10. So before we do that, I just want to turn our attention to God in prayer. So won't you, won't you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you are good and that all you do is good. We thank you uh, that you're a gracious God. Thank you for your word. You've revealed yourself to us in your word, and by your word we know what is true. So I pray, Lord, that we would just rejoice and revel in your truth this morning. pray that you would humble us. Lord, that you would humble me, that I would teach boldly but in humility, recognizing that I don't want to... I don't want to just make your word say whatever I want it to say, but, Lord, that I would preach it faithfully. And, Lord, that we would receive this humbly. Lord, that we would recognize where we are so distant from you because of great sin and that we would also recognize the grace of Christ that you've shown us. So, Lord, I pray now that you would transform us into the image of Christ. You would change hearts. Lord, you would be with us now. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Let's begin with verse 5 from 1 John. It says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now again, this is our text from last week. John's talking about this message, this true message which he and the other apostles have heard from Christ and are now proclaiming, which is what? That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He's not saying that God is physically light, like God is like a really bright orb of light. No, he's saying that God is good. He's saying God is truth. In him is no darkness. There's no evil. There's no falsehood in God. And so he's emphasizing this true message because apparently a different message is making its rounds around the community that he's writing to. And so John gives us this hypothetical situation. And it's here that he explicitly quotes the false teaching that's influencing his audience. This is the first 
dumb tweet that John is going to share and critique. It's in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So evidently there's people going around saying things like, oh yeah, I have fellowship with God. Me and God are real tight. But then they continue in darkness, doing what is evil, refusing to confess it, to bring it out into the light. They're living in such a way that makes it very clear and very obvious that they do not, in fact, have fellowship with God. And so what John says is this doesn't make sense. Light and darkness don't have fellowship with one another. You know why we can see in this room? Because there's light. There's light in this room. If there were not light in this room, then we would not see because there would be darkness. But as soon as light enters a room, the darkness is eliminated. It dissipates. And so likewise, John's going to go around saying, to say that you have fellowship with God while walking in darkness, by walking in unrepentant sin, walking in a way that leads to death, it demonstrates that we do not, in fact, have fellowship with God. And so then he holds up this false teaching against sound doctrine in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Fellowship with God looks like walking in the light, repenting of your sin, bringing it out of the darkness into the light, walking in righteousness, having fellowship with other people who walk in righteousness because the blood of Jesus has cleansed you from all sin. So just let me say this again so we're clear. And this is what Zach made very clear last week. Our sins aren't cleansed because we walk in the light. But rather, we walk in the light because our sins have been cleansed. You, Christian, are not cleansed because you walk in the light, but rather you walk in the light because you have been cleansed. So that's where we ended last week. If you missed it, you can go back and check out that audio. But I mean, after a summary like that, why would you? Okay. Now we're ready for our text this morning. This is going to be the, the second thing that false teachers are going around saying that John wants to warn his audience about. The second dumb tweet that John is going to critique. They say, if, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So just like last week, John's going to share this hypothetical situation in order to critique what false teachers are saying. And he's saying, could you imagine if we were walking around saying we have no sin, if that was the message that we were proclaiming, that we have no sin, like these folks that have come in and have said similar things around you. And I think what's crazy about this is that there actually are people going around saying that they have no sin. I mean, that's a, that's a really bold claim. How many of you have ever said that you have no sin? How many of you have ever said such a thing? Even the worst of us will admit that we have mistakes. Even the worst of us will say, yeah, I kind of miss the mark every now and then. I don't know what it takes. It takes a lot of confidence to say that you don't have sin. Or maybe it's foolishness. I like this quote from uh, the great Baptist preacher of the late 1800s, Charles Spurgeon. He says, he who cannot find water in the sea is not more foolish than the man who cannot perceive sin in his members. As salt flavors every drop of the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. I mean, just, just think about the text, the biblical text. Throughout Scripture, make it very clear that we have all sinned. That sounds like I'm almost quoting something. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In James 
3.2a says we stumble in many ways. And he's talking about Christians there. We stumble in many and a variety of ways. And then later in James 3, in verses 7 through 9, talks about how every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Mankind is really good at taming stuff, except for one thing, ourselves. No human being can tame the tongue, what we say, can tame the ways that we use our words. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, meaning these people are Christians, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So all this to say, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a believer or not, it's very clear that you do, in fact, sin. So my question remains, who on earth is going around saying that they have no sin? Who are these people claiming that they have no sin? Who would be so bold as to say such a thing? And a lot of ink has been spilled in commentaries throughout history trying to answer this question. There's a lot of people who are trying to figure out who are these, who is this group, who is this person, who is this cult that's going around saying we have no sin. And just to let you know, there's not a universal or even a general agreement over who is actually saying this. Some will say that uh, there's some form of Gnosticism, this early cult uh, in the church. Some say the Jews are going around saying that they have no sin. They're saying we have the law and so we're, we're perfect. Maybe John's just combating some people who are going around saying that Christ has paid for all my sins, so I have the freedom to sin as much as I want because he already paid for it. They're saying, I'm going to sin so that grace might abound all the more, as if Christ has like, written a blank check to bankroll their licentiousness. Or maybe it's just some other person or group that we don't know about. Maybe it's some guy named Gary. John's like, don't listen to Gary. He's the worst. We don't know. We honestly don't know. At the end of the day, we don't know because John never tells us. We can make some really good, informed guesses, but that's what they are, informed guesses. I say all that to let us in to know that it doesn't really matter who is saying this. In reality, that's really interesting history, and maybe it can give us some context, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter that we know who exactly this person is or this group is that John is combating. Rather, what matters is that we are recognizing that whoever these people are, they're saying that they have no need of the blood of Christ to cleanse them from sin. That's what they're saying. They're denying a need for a Savior altogether. They're saying, I don't need Christ. You say, wait a second, I thought that they were just denying that they had sin. Yes, but we need to read this in the original context. Remember what John said in the previous verse. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We, we, they're saying we have no sin to be cleansed by Christ. John says that those who walk in the light have their sin cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And with this in mind, upon thinking about this cleansing from sin, people respond, but we have no sin. Sure, this walking in the light stuff is great, being cleansed from sin. Cool, that sounds great. That's great for you. That's, that's your truth. But my truth is that that means nothing to me. Because I have no need to walk in the light. Because I don't need any cleansing of sin. Because I have no sin. 
I'm confident that none of us in this room today are first century Gnostics. I'm confident that none of us in here are first century Jews denying a need for a savior. I'm, I'm confident that we're none of these groups that John's possibly combating. But I am also confident that there are areas of our lives where we are functioning as if we have no need of a savior. There are areas of our lives where we're essentially saying, I have no sin. I don't need the blood of Jesus to cleanse my sin, at least not over here. You go, oh, of course not. I would never say such a thing. I don't know why I'm like a 70-year-old English woman. But that's you. I'm quoting you. You're that. <laughs> we think, I would never say such a thing. That's blasphemy. Of course not. Let me ask you this. Where do you turn when you sin? What's your solution? When you tell that lie, when you keep that secret from your spouse, when you fantasize about that person who is not your spouse, when you steal that money, when you speak too harshly, when you yell, when you gossip, when you go too far, what is your solution in that moment? In that moment, how do you deal with your sin? Does your mind go toward just doing better? Be better? Stop doing that? Just, just be better? Will it? An even better question is, is your motivation, is your primary motivation for putting an end to your sin, for stopping your sin, really just a fear that people will find out that you're sinful? Is your primary motivation for stopping your sin a fear that people will find out that you're sinful, that your darkness would be forced to be brought out into the light, that you would no longer be able to walk in the darkness, but you would be forced to walk in the light? It's easy for us to read this passage and think, what terrible people would say this? What terrible people would say, I have no sin? What terrible people would say that they have no need of a Savior? We would. We would. When our solution to our sin is ourselves, when our solution is to stay in the darkness, when we're not so different from John's opponents. John's combating heretics, and I know that I'm not saying that we're heretics, but I am saying that we should be careful this morning not to tune out John's argument as if it doesn't apply to us. It applies to me, it applies to you, it applies to any of us who are ever tempted to deal with our sin through any other means than the blood of the Son. That's who John is talking to this morning. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we, have, if we conclude that we have no need of Christ's cleansing, two things are immediately obvious. One, that we have deceived ourselves, and two, that the truth is not in us. And I really think that these are just two ways of saying the same thing, which is that if we say we have no sin, then it's obvious that we're going to and trusting a source of knowledge and understanding that is the complete opposite of truth, the complete opposite of reality. We've fooled ourselves into believing that something that is completely false is somehow true. And again, I, th I think we do this all the time. Usually not because we're trying to deceive ourselves. We don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to believe something false today. But we do exist in a fallen world that never drifts towards sound doctrine. And often we drift right along with it. Anyone here know what a tuning fork is? 
A tuning fork? I, I don't have it. <laughs> like I'm holding it up or something. <laughs> a tuning fork is this fork that you use to tune an instrument to. It's this little thing that you hit against your leg, and it, it sings out this clear tone. Usually they're in A. That doesn't matter. But it rings out a true note, and it's the standard. And so then you take your guitar, and you, you bring that note out, and then you tune your strings until they sound exactly like that tuning fork. God's Word is this tuning fork. And it's to this Word that we're called to tune our desires, our hopes, our passions, the way we parent our children, the way that we interact with one another and our friends, the way we argue with others, to, to tune our entire lives. And naturally, we go out of tune. If I don't pick up my guitar for a long time, it's not going to be more in tune when I pick it up. And it's the same with us. When we neglect, for example, a study of God's Word, it's not as if our understanding of truth is going to be strengthened. It's quite the opposite. We are constantly tempted to drift away from the truth, to deceive ourselves, to be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, as Paul says to the Ephesians. And the solution is not to deny our sin. The solution is not to deny that we're out of tune, but instead to recognize that we most certainly are and to turn to the truth of God's Word as our ever-ringing standard. If we say that we have no sin, that we have no need of a Savior, we have drifted away from the truth and we've fooled ourselves into believing a lie. I'll never forget a few years ago, I was in a small group with this pastor, and a bunch of the guys, we were all in ministry. And uh, he was a much older and well-seasoned uh, Christian. He had been in ministry for a long time. And we were going around in a circle and just kind of confessing sin. We were admitting where we were struggling. And when it got to him, when it was his turn, he said, you know, I don't really struggle with any sin anymore. We thought, well, that's a bold claim. You can't think of anything? He was like, well, yeah, maybe I, I said a cuss word in the office. We were like, okay, we can work with that. <laughs> when was that? He was like, oh, several years ago. We're like, okay, interesting. Right? You can't think of anything. There's nothing that you're doing. You're not deceiving anybody. You're not, you're not looking at someone lustfully. You're not, you know, not trusting God in some way. And he said, oh, as I've gotten older, I just, I just don't struggle anymore. I just don't have any sin anymore. I don't see any sin in my life. Now, now, I think he was trying to just look mature in front of some younger pastors. I like to believe that he's well aware of his sinfulness, but he just didn't want to be embarrassed or seem like a bad pastor. But John is telling us here that the one who thinks he has no sin is never the mature one in the room. Quite the opposite. He's fooled himself into believing a lie. The truth is not in him. Because he's essentially saying that maybe for a time he had need for Christ's cleansing, but he's really worked on himself and he's holy enough now that he has no need of Christ any longer. But this couldn't be further from the truth. So what John is saying here in verse 8 is that if, if we say we have no sin, we're saying that we have no need of the cleansing provided through Christ's blood. It's a refusal to repent of our sins to bring our darkness into the light. We've deceived ourselves into thinking that we're actually in the light, but we're not. We remain in the darkness. 
So I'll take a deep breath. That's just the first verse. All right? John's not playing around today. Verse 9 is a stark contrast to verse 8. Instead of talking what, about what not to do with our sin, John's going to now talk about how the Christian ought to deal with sin. So if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So notice that, again, he doesn't even have to make a case that you have sin. It's just common sense. We do have sin. It must be dealt with. But if hiding our sin, if denying our sin isn't going to deal with it, then how should we go about dealing with this reality of sin? And this is where I need everybody to listen very closely. This verse, verse 9, 1 John 1, 9, has been used undoubtedly by many and understood by many to teach a view of justification that is harmful, burdensome, and worst of all, unbiblical. Even with us just reading it once on the screen, you may already think that you know what this verse is saying. And so I just need for a second for you to take what you think, take what you know, and just, just put it aside for a second. Okay? We're going to do some really nerdy Greek grammar stuff. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I promise you this. This is my promise to you this morning. This will probably be the best Greek grammar lesson on 1 John 1.9 that you've heard so far this week. You can take that to the bank. So, let's talk about how verse 9 is called a conditional statement. A conditional statement. Or you can call it an if-then statement. And I have a little slide that just says, if A, then B. Because that's what a conditional statement is. A conditional statement is any time in English when we say, if this is something, then as a result, this is something. And so I have some examples of some conditional statements. If you punch a wild bear, it will eat you. So if you punch a wild bear, that's A, then it will eat you. That's B. Notice that B is caused by A. Had you not punched a wild bear, you probably wouldn't have been eaten. But you did punch a wild bear, and so it ate you. If you try to outrun a wild bear, it will eat you. It's another one. If you hug a wild bear, it will eat you. If you give a Baylor bear a football program, he'll run it into the ground. <laughs> so notice that in all these sentences, the if is what is the cause of the then. And so we have this structure in mind because we see these sentences all the time. And we come to verse 9 and we read it like this. And now I have this weird chart that we can put on the screen. We read it like, if we confess our sins, that's the A, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's why that's a problem. Because if we think that this is a typical if-then statement, then we end up walking away thinking that the cause of our forgiveness and our cleansing is our confession. That our confession is what causes us to receive forgiveness. But that is not what John is saying here. Because if that is what he's saying, then everyone who doesn't confess their every sin, even the ones that you forgot that you committed, or the ones you didn't even know you committed, if you confess 99.9% .9 of your sin, but 0.01% of your sin, your confession is imperfect or lacking, then God is therefore not faithful or just to forgive you your sins. 
I can't say this clearly enough. That is not what John is saying here. Because there's, there's two unhelpful assumptions that we're making. When we read this in English, there's these unhelpful assumptions we make that are not present in the Greek, which is the original language this is written in. First, we assume that the if or the a of this statement is if we confess our sins. And that's actually right. So good job. We did it. A is correct. If we confess our sins is indeed the a or the if of this statement. But then, we assume that the then of this statement or the b of this statement is forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We think that it includes all of this here. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, but that is not correct. The then of this statement is actually this. He is faithful and just. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. End of conditional statement. End of sentence. And then all of this talk about forgiving us of sins and cleansing us from unrighteousness is just showing us how God goes about being faithful and how God is just. He's faithful because he forgives our sins. He's just because he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. God's faithfulness and injustice don't depend on you. He's faithful and just on his own. Always has been, always will be. And so what we have to recognize, and I know this is some fun Greek grammar stuff, we, we have to recognize that this is a certain type of if-then statement that we're just not used to. It's called, and this is a term you don't need to know, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway, a present general conditional statement. That's your fancy $2 word that you can go take and tell people at parties, and it'll be a hit, like it's a hit right now. <laughs> present general conditional statement. I feel like a guy that's like trying to show you all like a collection of stamps and like convincing you it's cool. <laughs> I promise, this is cool. Let me give you an example in English of a present general conditional statement. If we see David leading worship, then Tim is preaching. So this guy, David, if we see him leading worship, then Tim is preaching. Now, David playing guitar and singing didn't cause me to preach. It wasn't like Jeff had a sermon planned, and as soon as David got up there, I was like, you know, floating up on stage. I was like, Jeff, I got this. That's not what this means. It's not this causal relationship. No, when you see David playing guitar and singing, it's this evidence with which you can draw the conclusion that I'm preaching. It just serves as evidence that you collect and you say, if, if David's singing and playing guitar, then that shows me that I can conclude that Tim is preaching this morning. And so in the same way with verse 9, us walking around confessing our sins, it provides evidence so that we can conclude that God is faithful and just. Now stick with me. How? How does that work? Because God is light and in him is no darkness. And so to be in fellowship with God, we cannot have any darkness. We cannot have any sin. If we want any hope of fellowship with God, something has to be done with all of our sin. Because our sin completely disqualifies us from fellowship with God. You recognize that, right? So if you hear nothing else this morning, here's what I want you to hear. Our confession of sin, admitting that we are indeed disqualified to have fellowship with God, it provides us evidence so that we can make the conclusion that God must be faithful and just because 
He takes our sin that disqualifies us and He forgives us our sins. And He cleanses us from all unrighteousness so that we might have fellowship with Him. So that we do indeed have fellowship with Him. That is what John is saying here in verse 9. Not that our confession makes God forgive us, that is dependent on our confession, but rather our confession of sin shows us that God is faithful and just because He doesn't condemn us. He forgives us. He cleanses us and He gives us fellowship through Christ His Son. We don't have to deny our sin like the false teachers do. They think that that's the best way to deal with their sin. But it doesn't at all. It doesn't deal with anything. But rather, we confess it and our faithful and just God deals with it through the cleansing of the blood of Christ. As we confess, we're literally experiencing His faithfulness, His justice. Greek grammar is cooler than you think. Let's look at verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So John comes back again to these people saying they have no sin, but this time he's going to use pretty strong language. I mean, it's a bold claim, and so it deserves a, a strong response. If we say we have not sinned, that we have nothing to confess, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us in us. Those are strong charges. And so I want to briefly consider each of these. First, he says that we make God a liar. You might be wondering, how does saying you have no sin make God a liar? That's a great question. And it's actually a question that John answers later on in the late later on in the letter. This whole this whole book of first John is a letter that's meant to be read in one sitting. And so, like you do when you write a letter, he's introducing concepts here in the intro. We're only in verse 8 that he's going to expand on, he's going to develop, he's going to clarify as we get through the letter. And so in our case, he's not going to explain how denying your sin translates into, God, into calling God a liar for five chapters. Just look at what he says in chapter 5. <clears throat> Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself in himself, like the word, the testimony, in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Why, John? Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne or said concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So sometimes biblical authors give, don't give such explicit answers to their questions, so it's really nice when they do. And that's what John does here. <clears throat> Remember, to say you have no sin is to say you have no need of the cleansing that comes through the blood of Christ. You're saying, I have no need of the Son of God. <clears throat> it's to refuse the, the very means that God has proclaimed and given to you so that you might have life. And so John says, the testimony is that God has given us eternal life and that this life is given through His Son. There's, there's no other way than through His Son, through His blood cleansing us. And so if we say we have nothing to confess, what we're saying is that we don't need the Son. We're saying we, if we say we've not sinned, we end up saying that God is a liar when He says that we have in fact sinned and that we are in desperate need of a Savior. We're saying He's a liar. That's not true when He tells us that we need the Son. Because that is what God's proclaimed, that life is found in the Son, that we're dead in our sins and we need a Savior. So to deny this is to call God a liar. 
which in case you're wondering is not a good thing, which leads John to his second charge. If we say we've not sinned, God's word is not in us. John is using this imagery like other New Testament authors would use, that, that we're driven by whatever's inside of us. And so just think back to, to Paul in Ephesians. He says not to be drunk with wine, not to, not to drink so much wine that you're controlled by it, but rather to be filled by the Holy Spirit. He's saying be driven by the Spirit, which is evidenced by this obedience to God. Whatever is in you is what drives you. And so the person that says they have no sin John says, is not driven by God's word. And I think I know where John's getting this language from. He's getting it from Jesus. If we look at John's gospel, just listen to what Jesus says to the Jews who deny that he's the Messiah. In John 8, 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, meaning they're Jews, and yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. And again in John 5, 37 through 40. The Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. Does that sound familiar from what we read in 1 John 5? Has borne witness about me. His voice, the Father's voice, you have never heard. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. If it's God's word that drives you, you know, you know where you're driven? To the foot of the cross, to the sun. God's word reveals the sun to us and always points us away from any thought that we're righteous, away from any thought that we could find salvation in ourselves, but instead that it is Christ alone who gives life and light to the world. God's word is in you. Your life is found in the sun. If God's word is not in you, then you have no life. You remain in darkness. You remain dead in your trespasses. You are not a Christian. That is what John is saying here. So if I could summarize all of our texts, these three verses from today, here's what I would say. Ultimately, John is, is talking about what it looks like to walk in the light and what it looks like to walk in the darkness. That's, all, that's why we read this those other verses first. That's what he's trying to support. That's the claim he's trying to make. There's, there's this difference between what it looks like to walk in the light in contrast to what it looks like to walk in the darkness. And at first glance, what we tend to do when we read this, we tend to conclude that John is saying that those who walk in darkness are the people who sin, and those who walk in the light are the people who don't sin. But that's not what John is saying. He actually demonstrates that walking in the light does not mean walking without sinning. Sin is a given for the believer and the unbeliever. Whether you believe in Christ or you don't, sin is a given in your life. To deny it is ludicrous. It's foolishness. But the difference between walking in the light and walking in the darkness is more about how your sin is dealt with and how this affects how you live. Walking in the light does not mean never sinning. Instead, walking in the light looks like confessing your sin, entrusting your confession to a faithful and just God who actually deals with your sin. And walking in the darkness looks like denying that you have anything to confess, which doesn't deal with your sin at all. So really, if we're thinking about the application of this text this morning, it's, it's, it's pretty simple. The question you have to ask yourself this morning is, 
How are you dealing with your sin? How are you dealing with your sin? Are you denying that you have it? Are you refusing to confess sin? Are you unrepentant? Are you walking in unrepentant sin? Which is pretty much the same as saying you have none. Are you trusting yourself to deal with sin? This is the error of, of legalism. Just, just notice, get on a hobby horse real quick. Legalism is actually just organizing your life in such a way to where you can call God a liar. That's what legalism is. To be able to say, well, the Bible didn't prohibit this. God didn't prohibit this, but you know what? I did so that me and my friends and my family and everybody I interacted with and prohibited from would have no sin. That way, you don't actually have to use the blood of Christ for anything. You can leave it for someone not as holy as you. You and your legalism make God a liar. How are you dealing with your sin? How do you want people to view you? This is a great question to ask yourself. Do you want people to see you as someone without sin? Or as someone who has entrusted their sin, that their sin has been dealt with by a faithful and just God? If you want to look like you don't have sin, confession is going to be miserable for you because it kind of pulls back the veil on reality. So you need to hear that your, your thin veil of righteousness cannot cover over your sin. Only the blood of Christ can do this. So are you entrusting your sin to Christ? Trusting that God is faithful and just and to cleanse you by His blood. If you're currently walking in unrepentant sin, if you're hiding some sin, you need to hear me. John is not saying that you are without hope. John is not saying that there's no hope for you. John's not saying that you're not a Christian even, but he is calling you to walk in the light. He's inviting you to walk in the light because right now you're carrying a burden that you cannot deal with. Give it up to the one who can deal with your sin. Your salvation is not dependent upon how well you walk in the light, but instead what's been done with all of your darkness. The blood of Christ is the only means by which your darkness can be dealt with. So won't you give him your sorrows? Won't you give him your guilt, give him your shame, your many transgressions? Won't you confess your sin and find a God who is faithful and who is just to overcome the distance, to grant you fellowship, to greet you with mercy and forgiveness and joy? This is what it means to walk in the light. So I, I want to actually give us an opportunity today to, to practice this, to confess and repent this morning as we take communion. But first, I'm going I'm to pray for us as the volunteers come forward to pass out communion. Lord, we, we stand before you riddled with sin. And as we, if we stand before you apart from Christ, Lord, we have no defense. We have no righteousness. God, you are good and you are gracious to us, unfathomably gracious that you have given us your Son. And I pray this morning, even now, that we would not deny a need for that grace or that we would not deny sin. Lord, it's so difficult for us to, to walk in the light because we know that everything's exposed. We hate the fact that we don't have control over what could be 
exposed. But Lord, I pray that we would see the richness, the beauty, the, the superiority of your gospel. That Christ's blood cleanses us from all sin. So as we, as we take communion, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of your gospel. That you would renew us. And Lord, that we would stand before you 100% washed, cleansed by the blood of Christ. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.